Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is, I think this is the 13th class of this 32-class structured study of jhana meditation. Um, this class is the on the Arya Parya Sana Sutta, subtitled no, Of Noble and Ignoble Searches. So it's the Buddhist teaching, again, from 2,600 years ago, the importance of knowing where to look for the Dhamma, where it's established, and how to keep focused on just that. Because the Buddha realized upon his awakening that a mind, a human mind that is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths is prone to continue to create very intricate and very powerful strategies to continue to ignore their own ignorance. And we all do it. It's a common human condition that leads to something called self-loathing. We simply think in some situations we're not good enough. We're not, we need more of me or we need more of stuff or we need to avoid stuff or whatever. I might need to be taller or shorter or have more hair. But we all put it on ourselves that if I was different or the world was different, then I'd be happy. Or we're relatively happy some of the time, but there's things that happen out in the world that we lose that focus. And we lose that focus because we're not concentrated and, we're, and something occurred in our life that we decided needed to be different. And what is that? What is that? But me continuing to, to feed my ego, we call it eye-making within the Dhamma. I need this moment to be different. Well, it's foolish because this moment is already occurring. It can't be any different than it is. People can't be any different than it is. I can't be any different than I am in this moment. But in this moment, I can begin to learn how to control my mind and I can learn how to see things clearly. And that's what this practice is all about. And that's what the sutta is all about, about the importance of recognizing where we should put our search. I'm starting a little bit um, past the introduction, but that's just... Uh, background information material about where um, it, it, Ananda came upon a group. The group said they wanted to talk to the Buddha to get his teachings, and so Ananda is now trying to, to direct the Buddha to this group. The Buddha is, is his cousin. So Ananda said to his cousin, The hermitage of Ramaka is nearby. It is pleasant and delightful. There are many there awaiting your teaching. It would be of great benefit to them if, out of sympathy, you were to go to that. It's an important line out of sympathy because Siddhartha went out and taught because he cared, but he had this deep human compassion, but now married with wisdom. And the reason why, reason why that's important is the Buddha always referred to himself. The Buddha always referred to himself. Oh, I just lost it with that. Uh, what was I talking about, David? Out of sympathy. Oh, the, the Buddha always referred to himself simply as the, the one who had figured out that it wasn't just enough to be compassionate about people. Because he looked out on the world and he saw very compassionate people doing a lot of harm. And a good example of that would, in our life would be the modern, uh, the crusades or modern jihad or all these things are about people that think they know better, we're going to be the saviors of you. And so they start pushing this on other people. But when, it, when I understand what the human condition is, because I understand Four Noble Truths, now I can marry wisdom with that inherent nature for human beings to be compassionate. 
And because I've resolved those issues in myself, I'm no longer causing harm for myself. I know I can go out in the world and I won't cause any harm. And the Buddha didn't do anything out in the world that could be construed as teaching until he knew what to teach. But he referred to himself prior to his awakening as prior to my awakening when I was unawakened bodhisattva. Bodhisattva simply means someone who wants to help others, who has this great compassion. They're mindful of compassion. That's their mindfulness. That's what they hold in mind. But he called himself an unawakened bodhisattva. Before his awakening, he didn't have the wisdom to understand what to do with his compassion. And that is a basic teachings of the Dhamma. Through understanding Four Noble Truths, we realize that we are not saviors, and that if I think I am a savior, I'm only rooted, that's rooted in my ego, it's rooted in wrong view, and I can only cause harm in the world if I'm going at the world that way. Because then, I have an idea of how the world should be and how you should be, and now I'm going to make you do that. Or, I'm gonna, or, or at least I'm going to be very upset that you're not acting how I think you act. Look at the world today. People are just going around in circles because they're so upset about other people not acting how we want them to act. That's how the world always has been. But now we're in this frenzy of just throwing views at people and seeing if they stick. And Let's own our views. Let's own who we are. Because if I'm upset with you, it's not because of what you're doing, no matter what it is. It's because of what I think about what you're doing, correct? And so if I have control of my mind through concentration and right view, it wouldn't matter what you're doing because I wouldn't lose my mind over it. I might recognize it as something that is less than ideal behavior for human beings, but that doesn't mean that I have to save the world from you. What I have to do is understand it so I don't contribute to the harm and suffering in the world. So it it is out of sympathy that we develop the Dhamma, but it is out of sympathy for ourselves. It's the most loving thing we can do for ourselves, and then we can take it out into the world. It is out of sympathy, if you were to go there, the Buddha agreed and they left for Ramaka's hermitage. As they approached, they heard a Dhamma discussion underway. The Buddha waited for the discussion to end. In hearing silence, he cleared his throat and knocked to announce his arrival. Upon entering, he sat on a prepared seat and addressed the Sangha. He asked, for what discussion were you all gathered here? Great teacher, we were discussing you, and then you arrived. Good, it is fitting that you have gone forth from good families, from home to homelessness, and gather for Dhamma discussion. When you gather as a Sangha, you should always discuss the Dhamma or practice noble silence. And that's something that we practice on retreat, and it's, it's one of the reasons why re, our retreats work so well in helping us integrate the Dhamma, because our five or six or seven day retreats are an actual living example of the Dhamma. The Buddha says, friends, there are two types of searching for understanding. There is ignoble searching and noble searching. So it's black and white as far as the Dhamma is concerned. And we're not saying that something that doesn't relate to the Dhamma is not useful or worthwhile in the world. It simply doesn't relate to the Dhamma, such as um, yoga practice. Many people gain great benefit from yoga, but it's something completely different than what the Buddha taught. That doesn't mean that yoga is better or worse or that the Dhamma is better or worse. They really are addressing two different things. And the same thing with with any religion you might hold. You can be a Christian and practice this because there's no religiosity, there's no salvation. It's just understanding. The Buddha asked a rhetorical question, what is ignoble searching? Ignoble searching occurs when a person, subject to birth, meaning having a human life, 
seeks happiness in what is also subject to that birth, meaning seeking outside for happiness, where we understand that everything in the world is impermanent, including ourselves. So no happiness can be established out there no matter how hard we try, no matter how big a pile of gold we get, or no matter how, how big a pile of gold we ideologically regret. Or, not regret, that's not the right word. Boy, I can't talk tonight. I don't know what the word was. I didn't like that. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to birth seeks happiness in what is also subject to birth, what is in the world. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sickness seeks happiness in what is also subject to sickness. Again, if we keep searching for understanding or for happiness or fulfillment in the things that aren't fulfilling to us, and yet we do it over and over and over again in a compulsive way, whether it's maintaining an actual addiction like alcoholism or drug addiction, like I was fortunate enough to have, or it's just a compulsion of sticking to an ideology. And many people form an ideology, you know, usually late teens or early early 20s when they get to hot college, and that's it. And most people stick to that ideology. And because it's so well-formed and so familiar, that anything that comes along that's counter to that is just ignored. That's ignoring ignorance, because it's not allowing for the entire human life to, to be part of your experience without aversion, without saying that something has to be different or people have to be different. That's how we live in peace in the world, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Every great war we've ever had was ultimately resolved by people saying, okay, I'm going to finally talk to you. Every single one. They made elaborate ceremonies in big, big, huge tables with 30 or 40 people all mumbling for four or five days, and then they finally say, I'm tired of fighting, okay, let's, let's get along. And they do that for a while until ignorance comes up again and the same fight comes up. In my lifetime, I'll be 67 next month, there's not been one day in my life that a war hasn't been going on. Not one day, not one moment when human beings weren't killing other human beings because they thought they were right. They thought that they were saving their world by killing other people. We would think that the first time one human being struck another human being in anger, it would have been so horrible to them, to both people, that they would have decided we are never going to do that again. But we haven't learned yet. Because we, haven't under, we don't understand who we are in relation to the world we live in. We want things and we want people to be different. And they can't be. How do I know they can't be? The same reason you know, because I look at it. This is what's occurring. To think that what's occurring should be different is the essence of insanity, isn't it? You may come to the conclusion that there's a better way to live, and there is. That's why we're here. And that's what we're developing within ourselves. So now when we go out into the world that is full of people screaming at each other, we can go out in understanding and realize why people scream at each other because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And we can have true compassion that way, rooted in wisdom, rooting in this understanding. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to aging seeks happiness in what is also subject to aging. What would that be? Well, it might be someone... Be careful how I say this. It might be someone at 67 years old who's lost half his vision can't walk without a walker, could be miserable about his life. But how, how awful could life be? Why did God make me like this? How come you're not like this? Or you can develop understanding and accept it. 
I'd much rather be who I am right now with understanding than not. And I can tell you that my life right now is much more meaningful in this moment than it was when I was 25 years old and didn't know anything. And all that I wanted to at that point was more of me. And now I just want to be me because I know I can't be anything else. And I'm not trying to hold myself up as something extraordinary. All that I'm doing is accepting the fact that I'm a human being. And all that the Buddha is taught and all that we're teaching here is to accept our humanity. Why? Because it's incredible once you do it. Because once we do it, we realize the secret to life. It's to be present for this moment. And what else could be more important than to be present for each moment of your life? And this guy figured it out 2,600 years ago. And his teachings are still here, telling us how to do it. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to death seeks happiness in what is also subject to death. What does that mean? Seeking happiness in a permanent way in this life when we know we're going to die. And since I know I'm going to die at some point, and maybe in the next breath, what would be the most important thing in that case? Excuse me. If I really get that life is impermanent, and nobody knows when the last breath is going to occur, why wouldn't I want to gain understanding? Why wouldn't that be the most important thing to me? Rather than one more steak dinner or one more romantic relationship, you know, or one, one, whatever it might be. One more, one more, one more. Instead of understanding, why the hell have I wanted one more my whole life and never been satisfied with it? Why is that? And why is it that nobody ever really asked that question until Siddhartha Gautama did 2,600 years ago? And he figured it out. And he said, it's ignorance of four noble truths. We simply don't understand the nature of our suffering. So we engage in ignoble searches. We think that the world, because we're in it, simply because we're in it, should provide satisfaction. And when it doesn't, we blame ourselves. Self-loathing, rooted in ignorance. Ignoble searching is when a person subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, seeks happiness in what is also subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion. So what is that? There's a lot there. But it simply means wanting your own stress to be different than it is. A good example from my life would be active alcoholism and drug addiction. I kept thinking that the next drink or the next drug was going to solve all my problems. And I believed that for years and years and years and gallons of vodka and pounds and pounds of other stuff. It all came close to more than once to taking my life, I mean, within minutes of killing me. And even when it did and I knew it, my thought was, I can't wait to get out of here and get a drink. That's insane, isn't it? But we all do it. it it's, it's more um, obviously manifest than someone like me. But everybody has some type of compulsion, whether it's, again, to maintain their own ideology or to other things, shopping, sex, etc., golf, the home shopping club. Is there still such a home shopping club? <laughs> That's about my... Is there? Like the home shopping network. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> no, it's just part of life. Um, I regret. I regret what I just said. And so when we start getting it, we fall into that, that melancholy of, you know, life it just really sucks and I just can't understand it. That's what the Buddha is talking about. And we can carry that, that self-centered, that ego-based self-referential thought from one moment to the next to the next. And it starts to color all our life. Or we achieve something that we thought was important that establishes us. And we use that as a distraction from simply understanding. 
And we have a lot of examples of that in the world, of people that achieve things that might be seen as greatness, and they're just miserable or angry, etc. And again, there's plenty of examples, I don't have to name any. Um, and the important thing of that is just to understand how it happens. And also understand that it doesn't have to happen. We do it to ourselves. And we can undo it. And that's what Dharma practice is about. It's about recognizing these um, gross and subtle compulsions within ourselves, within our own minds, so that we can recognize them and simply let them go. But they get caught up in these ignoble searches, thinking that if I can just get something else, or that, that some great teacher is going to magically take me out of my misery and give me salvation. And again, the significant difference between that and every other teacher that kind of taught in that way just you know, go with faith. You know, some life, one lifetime, a million years from now, you'll you'll awaken. Okay, okay. No, in this lifetime, it's up to us, and we can awaken in this moment. And that's what the Dhamma is here for. It's not about doing a lot of good stuff so we get a reward. It's about right here, right now. What's occurring in this life? How do I make this life meaningful by being present for it without the need for me to want it to be any different? And then every moment is meaningful. The Buddha asks, what is subject to birth? So these are where we find the triggers for stress and suffering. And don't, don't take aversion with what I'm about to say, because I'll explain it. What is subject to birth? Spouses and children are subject to birth. Look at how upset we get when a spouse leaves us, or a spouse dies, or a child dies. We lose our minds over it often, don't we? What is the Buddha teaching? That we shouldn't have those kind of feelings? No, but he's saying we should understand that if we have a spouse, we're engaging in something that might be called entanglement in a relationship. And that relationship, as with all things in the world, are impermanent. And that spouse might decide they don't love you anymore and they're gone, or they might get sick and die, or something else might happen, or something might happen to one of your children. And what happens to you when you don't understand it? Again, it can destroy your life. And I think we all know people that had those kind of tragedies and never recover from it. But the Buddha teaches us to understand that as a consequence of having a human life, I get the benefit of having loving relationships in my life. I can love my wife or my, my, my parents or my children or my brothers and sisters or you. And I don't have to lose my mind when you're no longer in my life because I understand that life is like that. And it's just that way. One of the most profound things that happened to me, and I usually say it when I'm teaching this. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Can I, can I just say this? And yeah, then, um, My father died at 101, so we all, I mean, you know, nobody lives forever. Um, and I, I had, I usually saw him. I regularly saw him once or twice a week, but I, it, it was just that way that I hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks and I got the call that Dad died. And, you know, so I, you know, I go through all that stuff. What do you feel? And, um, you know, going to the wake. And so I hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks and I remembered as I was walking into the funeral home how I felt when I was 14 years old and my best friend died. And it was the first time I had to go to the funeral. And it was the first time, I still remember walking into this little church and seeing Ken in that box. And it was the most horrifying thing I ever saw. And my first thought was, at 14 years old, is, my God, my parents are going to be in that box like that and I'm going to have to look at it. It was just terrifying. And I had nobody to talk to. And, you know, we're not, you don't, you're not supposed to talk about death. It's ridiculous that we don't, but we just don't. But 
contrast that 63 years later, and I have some understanding about this. And when I saw my father in the box, it was just this feeling of such incredible appreciation just for knowing this man. And it wasn't like anything that he should have lived longer, he shouldn't, he should have been better than he was, and he wasn't the world's most perfect person, but he was a fantastic father and a great friend. And all that I felt at that moment is just the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm getting caught up is, is not because of the loss, it's because of how poignant that moment was. I was just being, and maybe it was for the first time in my life, I was 100% completely accepting of a father. Think about that. And think about how we all want our parents to be different in, different, in certain ways. And it was just, it was just the most profound, profound experience, and I keep talking about it here in class because of that. And it's, it was remarkable because of how it was. And that if I felt whatever I was feeling was deep. You might call it grief or sadness, but I didn't have to put a label on it. I could just feel it. And even while I'm sitting there, you know, people cry, and they're supposed to cry, I guess. And I, I didn't even have it. With, and you people that come to class, you know how easy I cry. And it just wasn't in me. And, and I wasn't, I was just, it was just this, how do I describe the feeling? It was a, a feeling of profound, sad appreciation. Is the only way I can describe it. And it was wonderful. So, Do you want to scoop? Thank you, David. I'll see you Saturday. I'll see you Saturday. Hi, David. Hi, John. Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I had a question. In certain situations, when we uh, say that it's like a really irrational, you know, experience, or, you know, with someone or a relationship or whatever, sometimes that understanding, it's like we're never going to truly maybe understand that other person or where they're coming from, but do you mean... In those situations, sometimes it's more of just the understanding of our own contribution to our stress. So yes. that's where that understanding comes in. Because sometimes we won't be able to reconcile with, you know, fully with another. Yeah, you may person. never understand another. In fact, I would say you're likely not going to understand completely other people. You, know, you, you right. just can't know what's on people's minds. Yeah. Um, and so what we understand, though, is we understand the nature of stress and suffering. So when someone's in our face, for instance, or you know, maybe somebody you notice somebody stole something, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, that you're noticing you, you want that person or the situation to be different, it's just because of ignorance arising in that person. Mm-hmm. And because we understand it and have abandoned it in ourselves, we now understand why a person is acting this way. And because we understand it, we don't take it personal. But it, that sequence is important. We, we can't not take it personal and then... You know, we have to first understand it. Yeah. You know, that there's no... If we don't understand a situation, we're going to take it personally because we're going to label it or figure it out or get stuck on it. Right. Or if we just understand each other, again, through understanding ourselves. It's not something like I can read minds, but I can understand people's behavior because I now understand my own. And when people's behavior is falling into something less than ideal... Again, I don't need them to be different. But it also doesn't mean that I become, uh, I stay in dangerous situations or situations that a, a, a person is being aggressive with me. We don't become doormats just because we understand. But we leave those situations when we can in peace too. It might be, you know, I'm gonna, I'll talk to you tomorrow when you're, when you're more relaxed. Sometimes that's the best thing to do. 
Or it might be, I don't think we will ever have a meeting of the mind, so let's just agree. We used to, and it used to be, we used to have that saying, let's agree to disagree. I don't hear anybody saying that anymore. People say, let's, let's just completely disagree with each other. And we, and we, we're, we're, we've gotten so far to the point where everybody that doesn't agree with me is evil. You know, we, and we've taken this, this, this group mentality that I'm, if I'm the savior, then you have to be evil. And it's just so hurtful. The only thing that I, I know about people is stress and suffering. And because I know how awful it is for me to live in that quality of mind, I can now have true compassion for you when I see it. And I think maybe we can talk a little bit about this in discussion about how you've recognized that uh, in your own practice. Um, the Buddha continues, men and women slaves are subject to birth. Animals of all type are subject to birth, so they're also part of our stress and suffering if we want what they are to be different than they are. Gold and silver, material wealth, are subject to birth. What does that mean, subject to birth? Obviously, gold and silver don't have a, a, a gestational birth, but they come into, into play in the human experience. But they're also impermanent, isn't it? One day we got a big pile of gold, the next day it's not so big. But if we're tied into, we, we take an identity, we take our self-worth over the size of gold that we have, the pile of gold, when that gold is gone, through whatever reason, what are we going to feel about ourselves? We're going to feel worthless because we placed our value on something that was completely impermanent and actually completely valueless except the value we place on it, right? So we're foolish to do that. It doesn't, it, it makes sense to know how we live in the world, we use currency as a, as a means of exchange in a, in a way to, um, for direct barter. But that's all it is as well. So even the, 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 the gross accumulation of that or the grand accumulation doesn't change a person and the absence of it doesn't define a person either. The Buddha taught that every person is a six-property person. <laughs> Each person is a six-property person. The five physical elements and that six, the, the four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water, the fifth element of space, and the sixth property of consciousness. And that's all every human being is ever, ever can be. We live a life and we have experiences, but none of those things can we attach to ourselves, can we? Again, you know, think of my, my, anybody, once they're dead, they don't, you, don't, you can't bring anything with you. And I, when I think about that now, that's a good thing. It really is. Because it starts bringing our focus back to what's important. And again, it's not having the most toys at the end. Of course that's not. And if it's not that, what is it? Then maybe it's... I used to have a, a teacher. He wasn't a Buddhist teacher. He was a, a, a Christian uh, a father, Father Steve. And we used to have... It was an early recovery. We used to have these great um, uh, philosophical and spiritual discussions. And he would always finish this up by saying... John, he had this kind of funny, John, God is a relational experience. And I always remember that. And what he meant by that is that we, under, in that Christian sense, we understand God through people. And it may, it's just, wow, how else could that be if, if they're real? I don't, again, I'm not teaching religion. But if there was such a thing, how else would we experience it but through his creations? In this way, how else would I know what life is about but being present in my life and also for yours? and not want it to be any different. Because again, as soon as I want anything to be any different or anybody to be any different, 
I've lost the moment and I've lost the other person, haven't I? And there's no way to gain understanding at that point. If I keep taking the position that you or the world needs to be different and you need to change before I'll accept you, where do we go from there? But we do that all the time in very subtle ways. And even if it's people that we could say, oh, most people would hate them anyway, so we kind of go along with maybe not hating but disliking them a little, you've lost your mind. Because nobody deserves to be disliked, because that's aversion. What people deserve out of sympathy, no matter who they are, is understanding. Does anybody argue with that? Does anybody, can you all understand how understanding brings calm and peace in this moment? And understanding in this moment allows me to stay in this moment because of understanding. When these are seen as all the things that we talked about, when these are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and infatuated with all these acquisitions. Seeking happiness is what is subject to birth is an ignoble search. Seeking happiness in anything, what that means is anything that is impermanent which is anything in the world, right? There is nothing that is permanent in this world, nothing that we can point to. The, you know, even the, the scientists and the, whatever, the physicists, they tell us that even our universe at some point is going to end. And again, that could be right now too. So everything is impermanent. Well, I create a, a permanent identity onto anything, including the shirt, my favorite shirt or anything. You know, my favorite girl, my favorite anything. I used to have a favorite show, what was it? Oh, I don't, want to, I don't want to say what it was. Um, but we define, it was the honeymooners. But we, and for years I defined myself by that. But we do that, we do it with everything. And, and, and it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a harsh thing to accept that. In fact, we should be gentle when we recognize that we're doing this to ourselves and we've done this to ourselves because that's the only way to extricate ourselves. We have to be gentle with ourselves and free of judgment because the judgment of ourselves is just saying, aha, I like this and I want to keep it. The Buddha continues. Likewise, these are all subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion. Excuse me. Seeking happiness in what is subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion is ignoble searching. So now the Buddha teaches us what is noble searching. Noble searching is while being subject to birth. It's important. While being subject to birth means while you're having this ignorant experience, while you're stuck in ignorance, while you are prone to continue to ignore your own ignorance. He could say right here, I figured out a way. Seeking to understand the suffering of birth. Seeking the unborn, meaning not giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. Seeking the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke the unbinding, unbinding from wrong views. This is noble searching. So I'm going to read it again. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Seeking to understand the suffering of birth, seeking the unborn, the cessation of contributing to my suffering, and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. This is noble searching. So again, how do we do it? Through the Eightfold Path, the only path that Buddha ever taught. Noble searching is while being subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, 
seeking what is free of sickness, of aging, of death, the rest of it, etc. This is noble searching. You have to search where it is that you're looking for, right? And again, it's the Eightfold Path that guides that search. Noble searching is seeking the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding from views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. That's all that we're doing. That's our focus. This is noble searching. Uh, this Just uh, my commentary here, just briefly. Awakened right view is, relation to the Four Noble Truths, uh, understanding stress, understanding the origination of stress, my ignorance that, that gives rise to craving and aversion, understanding the cessation of stress. Understanding, in this case, is having the profound experience of it, of the cessation of stress. And understanding the path, the Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of stress. And again, understanding is an experiential understanding. It's not just reading about it and being able to recite it. It's having incorporated the Eightfold Path as the framework for our life. And that is what Dhamma practice is about. It's what developing the Dhamma is for. And so each class, we're adding a little bit more understanding of the Eightfold Path. We're integrating it more. The Dhamma makes a little bit more sense. We're able to see it more in each and every moment of our lives. Till eventually, and not, you know, it's not lifetimes, in this lifetime with diligent practice, you will awaken and have this release from the yoke, the yoke of ignorance. The Buddha continues, friends, before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, being subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, to pain, distress, despair, being subject to greed, aversion, to delusion, I was seeking happiness with what is subject to birth, sickness, aging, to death, etc. Then the thought occurred to me, why do I, being subject myself to birth, sickness, aging, and death, etc., seek what is likewise subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, etc., etc.? So what is the Buddha describing there? It's the same thing as me seeking happiness and to stop throwing up on my shoes, in the bottom of a vodka bottle. Or, that's just a metaphor for seeking happiness or understanding in anything out in the world. Because it's all an empty vodka bottle, no matter how pretty it might be. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't appreciate it. In fact, we can appreciate all of life, even things that we might have seen as ugly and having a natural aversion to it, but being present for it, and because we're present for it, there's meaning to everything. Everything. Even something that we might have had great aversion before, because we understand it. The Buddha then says, what if I, being subject to birth, were to seek to understand the suffering of birth, the suffering of the unborn, and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding? What if I, being subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, to all of the suffering that, is, that all human beings will experience. What if I were to seek the understanding, what if I were to seek understanding the suffering of sickness? Not ending sickness. We don't become supermen and superwomen. We understand what it means to be a human being. We understand that as a consequence of being a human being, I'm going to get sick. And when I get sick, I should do what I need to do to get well again, but not take it personal. And not worry about it. Again, 
Look what happened in the last two years to many people. And again, I'm not putting, I'm not saying that people that got very fearful over what occurred. It was appropriate. Maybe people went too far with it, but again, there was a lot of fear around is what I'm saying. And a lot of people had exaggerated responses to it. And some didn't. And even in a situation like that, we can maintain a calm and peaceful mind because we understand this is stress. This is what is arising. What if I were to seek the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke of the unbinding from Four Noble noble Truths? What if I were to seek that? The unborn state. When the Buddha awakened, he touched the ground. Some of you, that's not that. You might have seen pictures with the Buddha sitting with his right finger on the ground and his hand pointing up to the sky. And that means I've overcome the earth. He means there's nothing left for me in the the world. What he's saying is there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance or to give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. That's the entire Buddhist teaching on rebirth, to be mindful of what I'm giving birth to in this moment because it's the only birth we should be mindful of. Excuse me, mothers. It's a a different type of birth. Mm -hmm. What am I giving birth to in this moment? Each and every moment holds the potential to continue ignorance or to continue to incline your mind towards awakening. And that's the only choice we ever really have in this moment. So when you find yourself distracted or upset by something or grasping after something, remind yourself, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Reclaim your mind. What your, the object of your desire is still going to be there when you reclaim your mind, but now you won't take it personal. Now you'll be free. You will have liberated yourself from your own entanglements in the world. That's freedom. That's liberation. And yet you get to walk in the world as a truly liberated human being. And this guy figured it out. So at a later time, while still a young man, black haired, early in my life, he was 26 at the time, my parents crying. He had told his, per- his parents that he's going to leave the palace and <clears throat> seek understanding. His parents were crying. He shaved off his hair and he put on a robe made of rags and went forth from home to homelessness. I'm sorry, at the age of 29, I think I said 26. Having gone forth seeking understanding of these things, seeking what is skillful, seeking unexcelled and lasting peace, I went to Alara Kalama. On arrival, I said to him, Friend, Alara, I want to practice your dharma and discipline. I want to become your disciple. Alara said to me, You may stay. My dharma is such that an observant person can soon understand and integrate my knowledge and realize it for themselves through their own direct knowledge. That's an important line. He's telling Siddhartha that you can understand it. It's not something that is um, beyond human understanding. And there's something else I wanted to mention here. This, just to clarify this, going forth from home to homelessness, uh, it was common for men, uh, and really not women, they were, they were scorned upon. It was common for men of a certain age to, to leave their family for a couple of years and kind of wander around northern India and southern Nepal seeking understanding. Uh, the local community thought there was value in that and that you would bring back understandings to the local community so you were you were revered it wasn't you weren't looked on if you did it today you'd probably be called a bum or something 
but then it was you were you were given a, a respect for someone who was seeking to elevate all humanity. So um, when we talk about going from home to homelessness, we do it in a somewhat metaphorical way. And every day that we leave the world behind and sit on our cushion, you can say that we're establishing a disentanglement from the world. We're establishing our own type of homelessness. And then as our Dharma practice deepens, we're able to maintain that seclusion that we establish on our cushion, off our cushion. And in that way, we're staying disentangled from the world, but fully engaged in it. Nothing's touching us. Then the Buddha says, from reciting and repetition, I quickly learned his dharma. And I'm using the word dharma here as a, to, to differentiate between dharma, teachings that the Buddha didn't teach, and dhamma, what the Buddha taught. I quickly learned his dharma, and I could affirm that I knew his dharma. I thought that it is not through the, the mere conviction that Alara Kalama declares that I understand and have integrated his dhamma and realize it for myself through direct knowledge. Alara Kalama certainly understands and has integrated his dharma. So we went to Alara and asked him, what is the culmination of your understanding and integration of this dharma? What's the point? Alara declared that the culmination of his dharma was in the establishment of the dimension of nothingness. Much of modern Buddhism is taught that it resolves or reconciles in a dimension of nothingness or a dimension of emptiness or a dimension of neither perception or non-perception or um, what did Nagara teach? It's not that important. Um, These non-physical realms, these magical or mystical realms that were taught in almost every religion and even in nature-based religions teach that. Um, They teach a, a, a reward um, in a non-physical plane, if you if you have faith and you maybe do some certain things, follow certain commandments, when you die, you'll get a reward. Buddhists are often taught that if you, you maybe it's meditate long enough or chant enough or bow enough or any combination of these rites and rituals that the Buddha said don't do, if you do that long enough through endless lifetimes, you might get awakening. That's how it was taught to me and I, I don't know why I kept doing it, but I kept doing it until I got sick of doing something that I couldn't experience in this lifetime and and I just had this thought, and I'll never forget it, that if a human being actually awakened, he couldn't have taught something so damn confusing and, what I, to me, not applicable. That a human being must have taught something, if he was truly awakened, that human beings could actually use. And wouldn't you know what I found out? That he did. And that's what this is. So any non-physical establishment that I seek for myself is always going to be prone to stress and suffering. It's always going to distract me. Even the thought of that tomorrow I'm going to be acknowledged as the world's greatest meditation teacher and I'm going to finally get the award that I deserve. What is it? Obviously that's eye-making. It's distracting me from being present with you and it's distracting me from being present for what's occurring in my life right now. So again, even if it was true that I was getting the, that award, so what? It doesn't change this six-property person, does it? If I am truly a good meditation teacher, I will be, whether I get acknowledged for it or not. And if I'm a lousy one, it wouldn't matter either, would it? Because I'll be sitting here teaching myself. Then I thought, not only does Alara Kalama have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. He's saying he has all the qualities that I have. I also have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. What if I were to strive to realize for myself this Dharma through direct knowledge, meaning getting understanding or establishment 
establishing himself in the dimension of nothingness. I quickly developed understanding and fully integrated Alara Kalama's Dharma, having realized for myself the dimension of nothingness through direct knowledge. I then asked Alara if this was a culmination of his understanding and integration of his Dharma. Is this where we're going? Alara told me this was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his Dharma. He then said that it was a great gain for his Sangha to have a companion such as myself in their Sangha. He then asked me to lead their Sangha together. That was a great honor during the Buddhist time to be asked to be an equal partner and someone else like Alara Kalama who had a well-known reputation. Alara Kalama, my teacher, placed me on the same level as himself, paying me great respect. But I had the thought that this Dharma does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening. The Buddha understand that a human being, this self, could and should awaken, and that this wasn't it. Establishing yourself in your imagination, what good is it? To stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, or to unbinding. He saw it, it was just clinging to a self-referential view, me in some magical realm. This Dharma only seeks to establish a reappearance in the dimension of nothingness. So the Buddha is acknowledging that this person is prone to stress and suffering. Why would I want to drag it into another experience? Why don't I understand this? And this is where the Buddha starts realizing that there's something going on in his mind that's keeping his, himself confused. It's in himself that this is occurring. It's organic. I found this Dharma unsatisfactory, and so I left Alara Kalama and continued the noble search. That's the end of part one. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned Saturday for part two. So, again, some of this might not seem to fit to Ben and maybe to, to, to Jennifer, I almost called you Bridget, <laughs> just because you haven't been here in a while. But you, you come to a few classes, you realize that all that we teach is what the Buddha taught and everything he taught was in relation to dependent origination and four noble truths for the sole purpose of recognizing and abandoning our own ignorance. Uh, let's go online, and uh, Brian, how are you? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for the, the teaching tonight. It was, it jumped out at me, the the difference between the ignoble search of seeking happiness yeah. and the noble search of seeking understanding. Yeah. Um, and that you, you're not going to find happiness out there. Uh, you find happiness through understanding what's what's actually occurring. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting, and then the the, the echoes of dependent origination throughout that whole yeah. thing as well, coming through to me tonight. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Um, I can't read the name. Who's online? It's Jane. How are you? Hello, doing? Jane. I could have put my glasses on. I was too lazy. <laughs> you right. know I'm here. How are you tonight, Jane? I'm well, thank you. I have nothing to add to that. Um, but thank you so much for the teaching. Thank you for joining us tonight. You add to it enough. Jennifer, what do you think of tonight's teaching and what did you learn from it? it if anything. Confirmation. It's confirmation of, oh. of, of where I'm at. Um, like I said, I've, I've kept my foot in the door enough that yeah. I know what I'm doing running out there distracted, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, from loss and 
different things in my life, yeah. um, but the, it, it's clear confirmation, yeah. you know, of, of what I'm doing and um, what I should be doing. Yeah. You know, taking the eye out of everything. Yeah. Well, that again, that's what ongoing practice teaches you to do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you you came back tonight. I hope you keep coming. I, uh, and thank it, you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. If you have any any questions or you just want to talk about the Dharma, just send me an email. I'll set something up. I'm always happy to to talk to anybody that has any questions. Right, Bridget? How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Um, there was a lot in this teaching. That's why I broke it up into three <laughs> yes. parts. You used to see it when I teach it in one session. I can only imagine. <laughs> I think that this teaching is touching on one of the very great areas for me so far in my practice. And I feel like I've kind of been knowing that this moment would come and I would <laughs> grapple with it maybe when it did. I feel like up until this point, I haven't heard anything that boggled me or left me with like big kind of like almost like existential kind of questions yeah but this teaching does in the sense that where the thing i love about the dhamma is that it doesn't do what religion does mm -hmm. it doesn't offer us some mystical alternate reality but in the face of things like loss, sometimes, <laughs> that, yeah. you know, we look for that. Yeah. And that can be very useful. And while I know that the sound bite kind of from this teaching is that understanding will bring about, if not happiness, mm -hmm. peace, mm -hmm. I question the applicableness of that in some circumstances. I think in some circumstances that would take a superhuman. I'm just wondering what yeah. you can add to that. It, well, I can, I, I can add, yeah. when, you, when you start pre, uh, creating a scenario in your mind that is already that you already put the impossible label on. It can become impossible. You can't imagine how you can do something. I maintain the Dhamma in a, in a certain situation. That you, again, but where's that situation? It's in your mind. Or you might be thinking about a recent loss that you're still grappling with. It's, it's still the same thing. And it, it, it's not easy you know, I don't want it to, to make it sound like it's so simplistic that we that we deny it. We don't deny anything. We don't deny our feelings. In fact, we get deeply into our feelings. Like I described when I saw my dad there in the casket, um, completely in contrast to what I first expected when I was 14 years old. Um, so religion, I don't ever want to teach that you can't, be a Christian, for instance, and practice the Dhamma. But for me, I was brought up Roman Catholic, and through practicing the Dhamma, I eventually got to the point where I didn't say that I disown God, and there's no such thing. I don't, I don't believe that, there's, that there can't be a God. What I, my understanding through the Dhamma is that if there is or isn't, it's of no consequence to me. Because 
I find I don't need to know where I came from. Why? Because I'm here. It's like, you know, when, when you when you drive to a restaurant, you don't keep thinking while you're eating your meal how you got there. You're there and you're eating your meal. So I'm here. I'm having a human life. I don't have to excuse it away. I don't have to justify it. I'm here. And a, a human being has things called feelings and they have things called th thoughts about those feelings. We only get in trouble when we attach a thought to a feeling and make that feeling personal, such as either projecting to something that might happen in the future or something that was unresolved from the past that we're still grappling with and can't imagine letting go of that in a, um, let's say, a gentle or graceful way. And I might be, I might be inferring something that you're not, but without attaching a fabrication or something that might be in my imagination that I'll see my dad in heaven. Is that what you're referring to in, in any way? Kind of. I, it does, I don't like, want to cry too much. But. No, no, that's okay. I think it's just that, like, if we took, it, took an example of just like an everyday thing, I can see myself saying, okay, I'm not going to take that personally. Mm -hmm. You know, something little happened today. And it was something that might have upset me in the past, but I was able to easily look at it and say, that wasn't personal. That was completely about the other person. Good for you. And I still feel great about that person. Yeah. And, you know, it's the second time this week I've been able to do that. Outstanding. Um, yeah, so it's great. But then some of those bigger things, like those losses, those like huge losses or mistakes I've made as a mother. Yeah. How can I not feel personally about them? So, about yourself, forgiveness is something that is it's something that should be taught in school, and it never is. Most people kind of misunderstand it. Forgiveness isn't first recognizing a wrong and then saying, "Ah, eh, it's okay, I'll let it go." Forgiveness is the removal of judgment, the original judgment. That's forgiveness, and it's the only kind of forgiveness that's worthwhile. Because if I forgive you because I think I'm being so great for you, what, what am I what am I doing to myself and to you? So. Forgiveness is just that. It's the, it's the removal of judgment completely. But it also kind of leads to what you were saying. So um, the reason why, again, just going back to my, my father's wake, um, the reason why I don't have any like longing or wishing he was here or wishing I could go play golf with Dad again, you know, I, I, I was watching a golf tournament on a course that we used to play. It was just a... Just a pleasant, I mean, I could actually remember two shots that we hit on a certain hole. Just, just a pleasant memory. And so that's what dead, excuse me, but dead human beings should be, a pleasant memory if we love them. <coughs> but we don't have to get into there was something wrong about it, that a person shouldn't have died or they should have lived longer or their life should have been different or anything. Um, my mother died after 10 horrendous years of just brutal, again, it's just, just horrendous what she went through. Alzheimer's, believe a complication on top of Alzheimer's. Um, and it was horrible what she went through, but I saw her just before she passed. And I, well, that I, I could tell my mother, she lasted 10 years in horrible pain because she wouldn't let go. And the last thing I said is, Mom, it's time to go. Please go, please go, please go. And I left her with a, just a great feeling of, of having known her and uh, just how fortunate I was to, to, to be a part of someone's life. And isn't that enough, though, for, you know, the, for those ones that we see as a loss, that they were here in our life? To my friend, 
I, I still think about my friend Ken Dodd. You know, and he was, and I don't, it's not like, gee, he should have lived longer. At the time, I felt it. I blame myself for his death, even though I had nothing to do with it. But now it's just, but it just, you know, from all this time, 53 years later, it's just, just a pleasant memory. I'm so fortunate to have known Ken for those few years. And it was really, it was only two summers because he moved into town and somehow we hooked up and he was like a brother to me instant. And then he was gone. I'm, I'm a richer person because of it. There's nothing wrong in the world because I only knew Ken for two years. So is that getting to the what you're talking I'm about? Touching on it. I think it's going to take me more practice. Yeah, so, and you're right. Whatever the situation is, if it arises and you handle it poorly, what do you do? You forgive yourself. You remove the, the judgment from yourself. Why? Because that's Dharma practice. And you take a breath... <clears throat> And you get into the next moment of your life. And that, that situation will likely come up again and you'll have another opportunity to practice the Dhamma. And it's just that way. So the fact that you have to do something, uh, the, the, the fact that you have to keep coming back to the Dhamma is Dhamma practice. So you're not doing anything wrong. And if it seems in, the, in this moment that I can't get it, I, this is not me, no, 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 this is me, I'm holding on to this, go ahead. But also acknowledge that you're doing it. You know, it's your choice to hold on. And I think eventually you're going to get to the point where you'll say, eh, it's not worth the effort anymore. But again, that's just Dhamma practice. And you're asking a very profound question because it's implying that you, you can see where you're going, that there's going to be some, some big things that you're going to have to apply this to. Yeah, but that's just life. What was this list? This list from 2,600 years ago covers just about everything we can hope to encounter in human life, doesn't it? And we take a breath and we don't take it personal. And then and we leave the world in peace. Thank you for the question. Laura. Thank you, John, for the teaching. And thank you, Bridget, for bringing up some really, like John said, some really profound um, experiences and questions and insight. It's really helpful listening to all of you. Um, John, that was really helpful what you said because I've struggled with that idea of forgiveness in relation to Dhamma practice but it, it really is kind of what you said that removal of judgment which yep. doesn't mean to forget or to lose our mind or just oh I just did something horrible and just let's just forget about it or put yeah. it under the carpet and be present but it's more so I guess I'm noticing it's leading to even a deeper concentration and keener awareness of, like you said, this situation will probably arise again in the future, or then I'll have a chance to practice, you know, right speech, right action, right effort with the Eightfold Path, you yeah. know. But yeah, it can be difficult, and you know, when we reflect on our previous experiences, you know, and just to. But the self-loathing, it, it doesn't help because that just, oh. you know, we lose our concentration and lose our mind over that. So, um, yeah, over yeah, the way we think about ourselves. Yeah. 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 I, I interrupt you, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just happy to listen to both of you and I got a lot out of it. And of course the teaching and like we were saying, just letting go of ignoble searching or letting go of infatuation or ideology of yeah. you know, an idea or a thing or a person. So, 
I mean, even today when I was leaving, pulling out of the driveway, you know, I mean, I'm concentrated on what I'm doing so I don't like hit the kids in the neighborhood or whatever, you know, pulling slowly out of the driveway, but normally I'm just looking at the clock or thinking of something else as well. But, um, you know, and I kind of wanted my dad to come with me too and be here because he came one time. Yeah. But, you know, I just kind of let go of all of these things and wanting to change the situation or wanting him to change and be someone else. And he was just on the porch and we just had a pleasant, wonderful moment where we both waved to each other. He was just enjoying the sunset or whatever, or the scenery. And I just waved to him and it was, you know, a beautiful moment. Yeah. You know, I don't have to change it or want it to be something different, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, this practice helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's, you, you described our practice. Thank you. Elia, it's good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the teaching. My pleasure. Yeah, I think what you just said, Laura, about your dad is uh, is, that's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, experiences are happening all the time. Yeah. But it's just the backdrop that we give ourselves that, that yeah. we get caught up in, which is sort of not being present with, with the experience because the experience is just sort of inert in a way yeah it's yeah. an inert it's thing that we're yeah. exposed to and our it, being is the trick you know just being yeah. without being, a self yeah being i mean once i think the the more a practice we we do individually the more or collectively as well but i mean because i think it is a i think there is a um personal responsibilities you take for your own yes. um, path yeah. in life no matter what what way you take it however you do it it's your responsibility yeah i think that um the more we practice the it, it, we slide into we slip into being so much more readily yeah. like this <laughs> i go through days and weeks and months and and none of it's good or bad that's right it just is. Just life and unfolding. And, and I mean, I usually have a big smile on my face all day long. <laughs> and I think it's kind of charming. It is charming. I catch myself and I'm just like, why are you smiling? Is no one here? Yeah. I'm just like, everything's just, just, just in the garden. It's just, it's wow. just being is pretty extraordinary. I mean, we, we live in paradise. Yeah. We really live in paradise. And, and, and we that, understand and what's going on. it's not like the 3D paradise. It's the paradise in our in our understanding. Yeah. Like we create our own Eden, our Edens inside of yeah. us. It's what we hold in mind. It's how we're going to experience life. Yeah. Yeah, there's so... I, I have <coughs> a bit of a fear of snakes, snakes like a lot of people. Fear of snakes? Snakes. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. There, there should and be I no have, snakes. I have the one snakes thing in I my garden all over the place. Yeah, I'm, and, not, I'm not coming to your house. Please. And I, and I, uh, I've made friends with them now, and I feed them, and it's Snakes? Hilarious. Yeah, that's fun. Wow. I, I sent them out tomatoes, because I see, how, I see oh. them eating the tomato and sort of wrapping around the really? tomato, and then eating. Wow. Yeah, and so I lay the tomatoes out on different types of tomatoes. Italian snake. What? Put it in Italian snake. Italian snakey, yeah. <laughs> what? Well, just like, like. And he was out of the shower. I was like, okay, uh, this is my shower. And after a shower, I was like, okay, look, you. I did not. Not while I'm. 
<laughs> you don't. You didn't bring any with you, did you? No. no. I wouldn't be sitting here. No, but it's funny because I, I was like, wow, this thing is really giving me. A, I can. I'm making peace with this like thing that. This reaction. It, I'm making jokes, but are, do you think it's relating to you? Because I, I had a, a raccoon and a fox. I, I fed them both. They, the, the fox would wait for the raccoon to eat, and the, the, fox, the raccoon would go under a shed. And I watched the fox's beady eyes wait for the raccoon. And the fox did. And so, do you, do you feel like the, the snake is relating to you in some way? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. He knows tea. He whatever. I he leaves his skins around and he grows and, and sees with different, you know, things around, different things that he's eaten and left here and there. And it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, I'm great to tell you. I'm not going to go down River Road anymore. Oh <laughs> no, God! I'm just kidding. Well, I'm, I'm not afraid is, of snakes. These are I used just to garden snakes. I yeah. mean, there are other like crazy bigger. Massive snakes that I've seen. I was like, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> when my house got flooded, a snake came in that. I opened the front door, opened the side. The water comes in. The water goes. I was like standing on the steps. Like, I'm like, oh, there they go. <laughs> <laughs> they went right through my house. in your house. Well, the water's in the house, so everything's in the house. It's just kind of going out with your furniture and the other things. That you... <laughs> and you're able to make a common peaceful moment. <laughs> Thank you. Lydia. You know, but the thing about experiences is, are that once you've had a lot of them <laughs> under your belt, and some, <laughs> you know, some of them it's not true. so pretty, especially at a young age. You know, you get you either get with the program or you don't. Yeah. Like I'm alive because I'm alive. Yeah. I did it. You know, otherwise yeah. I wouldn't be here. So there's no half measures with crazy experiences. You yeah. Know, either, no. Either. Either you know. Live or you die, right? Yeah. Basically, that's yeah. yeah you, <laughs> and then you bury it, the people that you know didn't, and like you said, it's yeah. you know, it becomes a sort of a, a game, not a game, but like the chess game. Oh, there goes well, another piece, there, another there. piece off the board, another piece off the board. You get a certain age, you know, and it's like wow, a lot of pieces went off the board. Yeah, yeah, and I and I feel like when people they'll you know they'll as they grow. They don't make those adaptations through experiences. It's sort of like a stock pot, you know. The yeah. whatever the bones are, the longer you cook it down, the more intense of whatever that flavor is is. Yeah. You know, unless you are always adding water, which is like a flow mm -hmm. to the stock pot, and you yeah. and you can. But I, you know, people that have certain peculiarities when they're in their twenties or thirties, when they get to their sixties. You can see that they're gonna have to change, or they're not gonna make it. Oh yeah. You know, they're not. They're just. There's. There's. There's no way out of their trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> Most know? people live like that. They just don't understand. But. You know. Yeah. So a lot of burials. You know, a lot of death, and and then. Yeah. But then that's an experience. Oh yeah, I mean. That impermanence. And I, the the era that we grew up in, I buried six of my friends in high school just from yeah. you know, ODs. I mean, that was just common back then. You know, yeah, just what yeah. what happened, and then you know, then AIDS came. We lost a lot of friends then, and yeah. but again, it, it's nothing extraordinary. You know, I mean, I, I was walking home from school and, and to hear air raid sirens. You know, it was during that Cuban Missile Crisis. You were again, you know, that but it wasn't my life isn't any anything unique. It's just human life. You know, why don't we understand it? But it gets like it, it accumulates to the point where you're like, all right, I'm freaking resilient. <laughs> you yeah. Know? It gets to the point where you're like, are you resilient because of these 
adaptations. Yeah, because you've gone through so much, but you didn't really learn much. You just got through it, you know. And that's not it. That's not, life is... Yeah, or you learned, you know. I mean, you could... Yeah, you have to, you know, or you... Yeah, I did a lot of learning very early, like pre-10, you know. Wow. That was a big learning time for me. But you have to... The the experiences are blessings, you know. They're really extraordinary that... Oh, all of life is. I I talk about the the difficulties, but that... You know, I I wouldn't change one... There's one thing that I would change, but that's all. I mean, it's not much, though, for the life I've lived. And the things that I did when I actually hurt people inadvertently, I apologized to them. Yeah. You know, that's what mature people do. But I learned that when I, when I started recovering from alcoholism. That was a good thing to do, to put that in your yeah. past. Thank you, Elia. Yeah, it's okay great to join you. us tonight. Ben, welcome to our sangha. Thank you. I loved it. Oh, good. Good, good, good. It, it, it could seem like a little bit out of context, but maybe not. Yeah, well, I'm excited to explore... Um, more like a straightforward. I know. I don't know. I always pushed Buddhism away, kind of, because uh, it just felt like dry to me. But it's funny how, like, you know, we go through regular life like so asleep a lot of times. Yeah. And we kind of can apply that to, uh, like, when I study the Christian mystics and Hinduism, and I'm like, oh my god, I love. And then it's yeah. like, I have no idea what they're talking about at the end of the day. Like, what are they talking about? You know? And I felt like you were touching on. Get to the point. This is getting to the point. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mysticism aside, and that's all beautiful, but let's get practical. You know? Yeah. It's a practical application. And even if there are other planes, and, you know, I think there probably are, but I don't think much about it because I'm in this plane. Sure. So why, why, even, why even spend a moment of my time, you know, thinking about something that is just in my imagination? I mean, it's nice to speculate we're human beings and we think this way, but, you know, I want to live this life. And that was my biggest problem with, with religion when I was younger and Buddhism in general as I was practicing with all these. And I was fortunate to practice with some of the modern, most you know, famous teachers. Um, I only say that because, you know, that, that, that was my, I was driven. You know, I wanted to find the answers and none of them had it until I just studied what the Buddha actually taught. Sure. And it changed everything. So, um, Go on the website, sign up for the newsletter, come back to class, and uh, send me an email if you ever want to talk about something or just want to have a little one-on-one session. Um, go on the website, see what you think. If you, When you come back to class, I might talk to you about doing something like taking a Truth of Happiness course, which is an introduction to this. But let's just see how if you, if you want to maintain this interest and go deep into it. That sounds good. Thank yeah. you. So, and the same for you, uh, Jennifer, if you want... Uh, Go through the truth of happiness. I'll give you the book. It's out there. I actually have the book. Oh, okay. So if you yeah. want to do that again, if you feel like yeah, you need it, I made fine. It to, I think it was like chapter three or four. Oh, why And you... then I got distracted. <laughs> yeah, so if you want, go through it again and just start sending me the emails and we'll, we'll get you through the okay. book. And, you know, it's just a great way to establish a foundation yeah. in this. So, did you... I don't remember if you've been through the truth of happiness. Did we do that in here? Yeah, I didn't do it. If you want, take a book. And we'll go through it. Last week, so. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, so, well, you're going to start doing it anyway. So, good. All three of you are going to start doing the truth and happiness. Uh, take, take a book over there. It's my, it's my treat. My, be my guest. Um, so, um, beyond that, what did you, did you see how anything might relate to um, something useful to you? Yeah, I think the attachment. I've I've studied a lot of karma yoga and uh, oh, okay. just like 
yeah, trying to apply that. I feel like I have a very tough job, but it's also the perfect job probably when it comes to like letting go, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, a lot of opportunity for practice. Yeah, so I'm hoping I can uh, learn more about that. Yeah. Your job that you're, that you're that you Like your working work jobs for oh, okay. money. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the, you're, you're on the path, you're on the right path, you're gonna develop an understanding of the Eightfold Path, that's what these classes are about and the website and the book is about. Um, and so I know that you're, this is really completely out of context. So, you know, you got a little bit of understanding. You're gonna hear what I taught tonight in other suttas, so don't feel like you gotta hang on to this or just okay. understand this. But all the classes are on the website, so you can go back and listen to them if you want. I'll probably post this class in a few days, I'm a little behind. Um, but other than that, go on the website, listen to the guided meditations that are on there. Five minutes a day. How long are you meditating now when you meditate? I'll do like 20 minutes or... Oh, if, if you're comfortable doing 30. this for 20 minutes, do 20 minutes. I, I was thinking you were just starting out. So no, whatever no. you're comfortable with, doing it twice a day. Um, sign up for the newsletter and in that will be the, a link to the, the sutta that I'm teaching so you can read it beforehand and get, get acquainted with it. Um, and just you'll, you'll get to know what we're doing here and how to integrate the practice, but you're on the right path. So again, welcome to our sangha. Uh, healing path. The healing path. That's a heal, healing path acupuncture. Yeah. You're on the right path. Yeah. The healing path. Switchbacks galore. Yeah. yeah. There is a lot. Any other questions? Well, thank you. We'll, we'll continue this. Uh, part two will be Saturday, and we'll conclude this sutta next Thursday, next Tuesday, and we'll continue with this. I also teach a Thursday class at 2.15 if you're looking for something to do. On Thursday afternoon at 2.15, yeah. <laughs> it's really for people overseas. But. Oh, right. We've got different times. Yeah, different time zone. Cross-pond. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I work on a medevac helicopter in Philly. Uh, wow. Like paramedic. I love really? it. I love it. Wow, what a job. It's just, uh, I battle with like, Am I finally understanding non-attachment, or am I just numb? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll find out with this, because yeah, this, this will yeah. tell you. Yeah. Uh, but maybe you have to do a certain kind of numbness just to keep the level, right? Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. there's so much going on. serious yeah. business going on at all times, and you know that that's going to be happening. It's not like, oh, we're taking a play, or we're going to see the zoo. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're going into the zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so you probably have to be numb helped. a little. Yeah. Probably, I mean, numb to, you know, it's like probably it's like something that your body does to save itself, to yeah, yeah. keep you yeah. away from the... What's happening, yeah. 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 So you can function, right? Yeah. Pull your tools out of your toolbox and know what to do. For sure. Yeah. By rope, kind of, right? Without yeah. going... Otherwise, you just stay with it. Yeah. That's a balance. That's a crazy balance. Yeah. Well, as you as you That's continue to deepen your concentration, you know the, the focus now in your meditation is to deepen your concentration, which obviously will make you better able to be present for these the, the terrible things that you have to do. Mm-hmm. But you you, you won't have to be numb to them because yeah, you'll understand one. that you can just be present for it without taking it personally. But I don't know, also understand that you know you you've chosen to do one of the most difficult jobs. Anybody could imagine. And so you need to be gentle with yourself if you're going to do the job. In other words, it's it's being harsh with yourself to think that you should be different. 
Sure. You know, it's, it's incredible that you're doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Just I'm listening to him and you and thinking, because I'm an artist, like my life is completely di different. But at the same time, there's something very similar oh, yeah. in that I'm not making the art. Like, I'm, right, I've got a full set of tools. Like, you've got a full set of tools. I mean, your abilities, your, your mind, your hands, your heart, your everything working together. You know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not doing it. Yeah, totally. It's just you know, it's sort of just, just passing through me. Sure, sure. You know, and yeah. the, and I think that there there can be. I I think the numbness thing is mm -hmm. is good until you integrate. Mm -hmm. And when you integrate, I don't know that you would have to do the numbness. No, it just it would fall away. It right? would that's fall your, away. That's yeah. what you're doing to compensate. But again, we'll. You'll you'll notice it. It won't be um, through the Dhamma. It'll be a, it'll be a gentle understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, again, everybody here to know you. You have to be gentle with yourself. So again, to do and again the other thing is to know that you're doing the best you can, no matter what. You know, and even if you somehow fail somehow, I don't know how that might be with you, but it's pretty catastrophic. But even then, what do you do? You have to forgive yourself, which is the removal of judgment. All the time, and and again, think about that. Why should I, I'm? It's it's literally an insanity for me to judge myself harshly, isn't it? I can understand that my my behavior could improve in certain ways, or maybe my performance. But to to consider myself bad or wrong or lacking, who would do that to themselves? But yet I do, and you know, it's it, that self-loathing. We all do it. We think that that's a way of getting better by first finding out what's wrong. It's not. Recognizing what you'd like to change. Be gentle with yourself. Take a breath and get on with your life. You know, get into this moment. And I can't think of anything that would put you more in the moment than that. Yeah, I was on one of those really. once. I oh, you were? Yeah. No, I fell off a roof. And it was, I mean, you, you guys are incredible. I don't remember much of it, though. I was, I was screaming to the state trooper that was on the, on the point. I said, kill me, shoot me. The pain was just so awful. And they, and they couldn't, I guess you, you can't give anybody, they said they couldn't give me any morphine until I got to the hospital. Yeah. What was that here? That was in New it was in, uh, it, it was in New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, you guys saved my life. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's why I had that. You know? I was lucky. I, I got, when I, I got into the hospital, they thought, they were concerned that the, the paralysis was going to spread up to my lungs and I'd stop breathing. And luckily it didn't. And then they said, you're never going to walk again. And I, I walked, I played golf, I did rock climbing. It was, you know, for many years until it, you know, so I was very fortunate. Wow. Yeah. How could I be mad about that? <laughs> and there was a guy laying on the, he fell off a roof too, laying on the gurney next to me. He died while I was laying there. So you, you get real grateful real fast. The two of you fell off together? No, no, he was on another, it was just Different. coincidence. He was, wow. I never knew him. I don't know who he was. That's he ended up next to me. It's a crazy coincidence. Yeah. yeah. All right, so um, we're going to finish with metta, as we always do. This is the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Uh, so just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And this, this relates directly to relationships, kind of what we're talking about. The Buddha's words. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, 
humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting <clears throat> none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. See you, Jane. See you, Brian. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.